0: Welcome to Black Men Speak, a podcast that highlights ordinary men doing extraordinary things. I'm your host, Keith Dent. Back in February, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Armand Perry, professor at the University of Louisville's Kent School of Social Work, and author of Black Love Matters, Authentic Men's Voices on Marriage and Romantic Relationships. Today, we're going to continue on that discussion on men's views around love and relationships, talking about these topics, love during the pandemic, how the current relationship structure is not necessarily helpful for black couples. I've never thought that that model was a good fit for black people Mm. and it's because, um,
1: Number one, it wasn't created with us in mind. And it's also the case that because of uh, systemic racism and oppression, black men have never been in a position to earn the types of income that white men have because it's not one that matches or has ever matched our economic or demographic realities.
0: At what age women should expect men to be ready to be in a committed relationship? If you are a woman
1: and you're looking for a serious committed relationship, if the man that you are involved with is 24, 25, 26, um, I, I think I would hold out until right around
0: 28. And the type of intimacy men are really looking for.
1: That men wanted to achieve a level of intimacy with their partners that uh, did not involve sex. Now, that's not to suggest, I want to be clear about this too, this is not to suggest that they weren't interested in having sex with their partners. They absolutely were. Mm-hmm. Um, they were saying that they wanted, in addition to that, they wanted to
0: feel connected. So on that note, let's start the show. So, hey, Dr. Perry, how you doing? Keith, how are you? I'm doing well. How's everything? How are you doing uh, with, uh, I don't even know what we call it now. We, I guess we still call it COVID-19, but, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how, how how's everything been going since we, l- we last spoke?
1: Yeah, I, things things are going well. I, I can't complain. Uh my, my family is all safe and healthy, so that's the most important thing. I will mention that I'm wrestling a bit of a seasonal allergy bug, but uh but again, all things considered, I will I will not complain at all. It's good to be with you. Uh, I appreciate having the opportunity
0: to to reconnect and re-engage. Looking forward to great. Great. Yeah. So we, we're gonna delve into a you know series of topics and we're gonna actually which is great because I think we're gonna go from from single to, to marriage. We're gonna cover a whole, you know, a few topics. So so we're gonna just start with singles first. So I, I ran across an article. Um, and she's kind of the main art, writer in Black and Married with Kids is the website. Uh, and her name's Tia Cunningham Sumter, and she talked about really relationships and dating outside of COVID. And she talked about, it was really from a woman's perspective. So, you know, for, so I figured, oh, and it was some advice and what are women or what they need or what they want, what they're looking for. And, and I guess it was basically a, you know, a shift due to, due to COVID. And so I thought we would touch upon that first, you know, from a male's point of view, has there been a shift in relationships and their, thoughts of relationships when it comes to covid that you've seen
1: yeah so when i think about the the people that i'm connected to and the people that i engage in the work that we do i think that there are a couple of things and and the, the first thing is i think it's important to be able to understand that we have obviously we have covid but we also have this sort of generational shift with the proliferation of online dating and getting connected to people online and so on and so forth you know i was talking to a couple of my students and my students keep me sort of grounded in, in, in the know, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Cause they're 18 to 23 years. And most of them when, when asked how it is that they, if they have a partner or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever the case may be, when you ask them how they met or whatever their sort of origin story is more and more, these folks are talking about having met their partner on Instagram or online somewhere. And in my mind, I'm having to sort of, sort of wrap my mind around what that even looks like. Right. Like, like it wasn't, it wasn't an in-person meeting. It wasn't a face-to-face interaction. It wasn't sort of a serendipitous sort of coming across a person in the frozen food section at the grocery mm, store. Like right. It was online. It was on Instagram. It was on whatever sort of other platforms folks are using. So, so anyway, so that happening at the same time where, necessarily people are being asked, and in many cases, uh, being encouraged to stay apart from or refrain from in-person interaction. And so we have this sort of simultaneous confluence of sort of a weird and awkward stepping away from the types of activities that might lead to the development of a relationship. But it's happening at a time where people are probably more equipped to be able to connect and engage each other without having to share the same physical space. But the the question then becomes, as those relationships grow and evolve, they they then turns into what becomes an interest and maybe even a need to have some physical proximity and some physical connection. The challenge then is how does it, you navigate that and manage that while also doing so in a way that keeps you safe and healthy as well as your partner. And so I think what happens is it necessarily ratchets up the, the premium placed on trust. Right. Right. Because you still have to be able to trust and know that when the person is not with you, that they are abiding by sort of guidelines and carrying themselves in such a way that doesn't put them at risk and subsequently doesn't put you at risk. And so that's been interesting, because, again, of course, as you know, even before a pandemic, outside of a pandemic, independent of a pandemic, trust is. of the cornerstones of any relationship so i think what we've seen is that that just has become even more of a priority for just a number of different reasons so that's what i'm interested to see where people are as it relates to dating against the backdrop of a pandemic
0: but what's also interesting about that is that you know when you meet face to face you have the ability to use all your senses to kind of get a sense of the person whereby online or even Zoom or whatever, a lot of Zoom dating, you had to rely solely on what is being said.
1: There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Chris Rock talked about the the idea that when you meet a person, you, you don't really meet them, you meet their representative, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and and so again, how authentic and how transparent uh, people are going to be in their online persona is really, really difficult to gauge. Um, and again, as you mentioned, I think that normally, even even in, even with the proliferation of the online dating before the pandemic, folks would have an opportunity to sort of assess the extent to which people were being truthful and honest when they actually met face to face. And over time, you get a sense for how real or how authentic a person is being. But again, with the limits on how much people are engaging or connecting one to one or in person I think that makes it much more difficult to be able to separate what's real from what's not. Mm. Um, and so these are, these are really, really interesting times, of course, um, outside of dating, the pandemic has had negative impacts on people's mental health, because again, human people, human beings just have a need for interaction. Right. And And not being able to do that has been really, really detrimental. And I would imagine that for single people, that has been exacerbated because, again, even for, for married people, although they aren't able to or haven't been able to uh, maintain their regular social lives. But if nothing else, they can still rely on having some human interaction with their spouses and and kids and things of that nature. So they aren't as isolated, at least theoretically, or conceptually.
0: Right. And um, for married people, they've almost been too close. Not, not <laughs> enough separate, not, <laughs> not enough separation. Right. Right, yeah. I, I'm seeing you 24 hours a day and, you know, enough all, is of, enough, the, all right. of the quirks and things that I just couldn't stand mm-hmm. now has been ratcheted up. But yeah, we'll get to the married, we'll get to the married folks. But with that said, our men, because of COVID, have they shifted their thoughts or have you noticed shifting thoughts of what they're actually looking for or using to kind of weed out certain uh, partners?
1: Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't get the sense that what men want has shifted. Uh, again, I think at least based on what I'm hearing and what I'm saying is less about a shift in what it is that they want or what they say they need It's more about how is it that you're able to sort of screen and filter out who either, who either does or doesn't have those things because you're limited in whether or not you can do what would have been, Sort of a more accurate assessment, or trial period, or what some people call, young people call, uh, the talking phase. I don't know if you're familiar with this, mm, right? There's the talking phase of, of, of,
0: of oh, talking. just
1: talking, right, right, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, which is almost like a, a precursor to a relationship, right? It's almost like a preliminary, like the free trial, right? Like you, like you want to sign up for a subscription service, and then you get a 30 day trial with talking, right? Mm, mm-hmm. And depending upon how that goes, if that goes well uh then you may the 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 arrangement may evolve into a relationship or evolve from what some are calling a situationship into a relationship. And so anyway, so I don't think that people's criteria for whether or not they want the arrangement to evolve into a relationship. I don't think that is changing as much as it is their ability and the mechanism, at least for the men that I'm connected to and engaged with. Right. The ability and the mechanism that they have to assess whether or not to move that thing up to the next level has become more difficult because of the the lack of or well, the inability to to engage uh, in person, face-to-face in a manner that approximates to whether they were accustomed to.
0: Right, right. And I wanted to touch upon this because I thought th- this was from a, the women's perspective and I, I just wanted to touch upon this because I thought it was fascinating um, because it was saying that women were looking for men to love and res- respect them. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe do the f- feminist movement or just, you know, they have a lot more, they a lot more prominence than they had in the past. Sure. Um, but one of the things that, which she mentioned in the article, impact is that a man wants to feel needed, you know, by his woman. They want to know that they are able to add value to your life. They don't want to feel like an accessory mm-hmm. to a woman's, Already fabulous life, mm-hmm. and so and, and so. I mean, and that's real, and that can happen just by virtue of how things have shifted. You know, less men are going to college. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're they're maybe taking on more blue collar jobs or just things that don't involve a college education. So, as men, what do we need to do in order to lean on our strength and show that we can add value? relationship
1: sure. yeah that's a really good question and, and i would completely agree with with everything that she was just saying because again as a college professor like i see this in the classroom right where more and more a heavier and larger percentage of the students are female and we also live in a time and a place and a space where uh we don't have a goods producing and manufacturing economy anymore so like said, in days gone by it used to be that even if you didn't have a lot of formal education you could secure a job in a factory uh, and and that factory job paid a wage that was sufficient to provide for your family. Well, that work is gone um, and and it's not coming back. And so it's being replaced with jobs that require a lot of formal education. And to your point, what does that mean when a larger percentage of the population in college is female? Well, what we're starting to see and what we'll continue to see is a closing of the gender gap, right the the amount of money that women make in relation to the amount of money that men make. So what happens when that is occurring at the same time, when we, we have not yet shifted completely, the thoughts and ideas that men's primary role in relationships and families are to be providers and protectors. What is men's role? How do men add value or bring value if and when they are in a position to be providers or they are attached to a woman who is in a position to make as much, if not more money, than her man, right? So it is, it's necessarily challenging men to, to reconceptualize what their role and relationships are, what their roles and families are. One of the things that uh, I've had men talk to me about was being irritated by <laughs> um, women's, at least again, in their case, uh, the women's that they were in, involved with women's interest in, uh, preemptively talking about how independent they were. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. so a lot of the guys have talked about, uh, the importance of interdependency, right? This idea that we lean on, we rely upon one another, right. We become Mm -hmm. partners. Right. Um, so that, uh, we each have a role to play. And as long as we each are playing our role, that necessarily begins to create a virtuous cycle of sorts. Okay. Um, and talked about how listening to women unsolicited talk
0: about their independence is a, a turnoff. Um, mm-hmm. uh, right. In terms of, the, well, I, I don't need you. So sure. like that, that kind of language. That's, that's exactly
1: that's exactly it. And again, okay. keep in mind, we're talking about an unsolicited and a preemptive independence. Right? So. So in other words, it's one thing for it's one thing for me to ask you say, hey, Keith, do you need me? And then you say, well, no, Armand, I don't need you. It's one thing for you to respond to my question with a simple and accurate, truthful statement, but it's something completely different for you to, you and I to just be walking down the street and minding our business. And then without any prompting, you just say to me, hey, Armand, like, you know, I don't need you. <laughs> okay. Like, right. Like, like, why did you feel compelled to just, <laughs> right? So it, it feels like. Uh, it feels like it's an attempt to almost sort of establish some dominance, right, mm-hmm. uh, in, in in some ways, and at least in the ways that the men that I've had this conversation with, uh, that's the way that they received it. Now, the flip side of that coin is I've also had women talk to me about the idea that they have been connected and, and, and engaged with and partnered with men who verbally talked about wanting a more egalitarian relationship than what is traditional, right? So in other words, women being turned off by the fact that they, that the men that they were involved with wanted a woman to help with the financial provision, but they, they being those men still wanted the women to take care of a disproportionate amount of the domestic labor, right? So, so anyway, so in days gone by the the sort of arrangement was okay, man is provider, and in exchange for his provision, he does have to concern himself with the domestic work. And for women, their role was to take care of the house, whatever that meant. And in exchange right. for having completed those roles or the duties associated with that, she need not concern herself with the financial revision. And so what is happening is <clears throat> women are in a much better position to take care of the financial piece. Again, in, in many cases, in increasing numbers of cases, better position than the men that they are in relationships with. The challenge that women are being faced with and the pushback that I think we're seeing is that women are saying, hey, we're taking on this added responsibility of financial provision, yet we're not seeing the same level of decrease in terms of these other roles around domestic labor and expectations. And and that is troublesome or problematic. And,
0: And I could see that definitely play out, especially during the COVID environment whereby a woman is working and even though we know that there was a that women lost a lot of their you know their labor the labor force due to the pandemic and having to take care of children and what have you but for those that were still maintaining their jobs and having to do the extra work while you know their spouse was also sitting right next to them and not picking up you know part of that and uh, i can see that you know definitely being a challenge and and yeah and so it and it's interesting because you know we've always been or men is always have always been uh i guess conditioned to be those things that we meant talked about that provider and protector and and so and most of that involves you know definitely the financial currency and so when that's no longer in play what what do you do you really have left <laughs> you right. know and, and, that, you know, and that gets us
1: back to those questions about men wondering and being concerned about, well, what value do I have? What, what is it that I'm bringing to this relationship? And in some cases, they're being prompted to ask those questions of themselves because their women are saying, <laughs> what value do you have, right? If, if I'm having to bring home the bacon and cook it, what in the world, right? And so, and so anyway, so the, this phenomenon of, of having to disproportionately uh, provide and do the domestic labor. Uh is it, what's known as the second shift is mm. what is known as in sort of women's circles or in feminist literature The second shift and so okay. it's a reference to the idea that you get up and you go to work and you work a full-time job Right only to come home and still have a full-time homemaker's responsibilities Meanwhile the case is not the same for your partner who again works a full-time job but then expects that you take on the disproportionate amount of the, the other work there. I'll also say too, that, um, as you mentioned, men are sort of, uh, socializing conditioned to want to be providers and so on and so forth. And certainly that is indeed the case. That is what, uh, we are taught in a Western society. I've never thought that that model was a good fit for black people. Mm. And it's because, um, number one it wasn't created with us in mind and it's also the case that because of uh, systemic racism and oppression black men have never been in a position to earn the types of income that white men have right so the and it's also the case that because of that same systemic oppression and racism black women have always been involved in paid labor outside of the home in amounts that well exceeds where it was that white women Uh, Were so even when we got into the late 60s and 70s in the so-called women's movement Black women were already working outside of the home, right? So what we know is the women's movement really more accurately can be described as the white women's movement Mm. Women were already involved mostly in domestic labor um, Sometimes paid domestic labor housekeepers things of that nature for for middle-income and upper-income white families. so and so The idea of a rigid division of labor along gender lines, where men do this and women do that, and there's no or little crossover, that has never been uh, a, a good model for Black people, because it's not one that matches or has ever matched our economic or demographic realities. The fact that that's been superimposed on us by the broader society is one of the biggest issues and challenges facing our relationships, because it necessarily takes away one of our biggest strengths which is the fact that we are a communal people, right? And it turns us into people who begin to look at our partners in ways that are competitive. So in other words, rather than working with you in an interdependent way, right? I start talking about how independent I am. You start talking about how independent you are. And then we one day look up at each other and we say, well, what are we doing then? Just go your way and I'll go mine. And I think demographically, we've been seeing a
0: fallout from that um, for for decades. Yeah, that's I mean, that's fascinating because, yeah, it's it is true with. Yeah. With slavery, there was never been a. There was never any point. And then where we didn't depend on our partners to for everything we had to, you know, we you know, we were both in the fields. Um, or even, you know, get to industrial revolution, things have happened. We both had to work just to make sure we maintained the family unit um, mm-hmm. because we had to provide for our kids. So w- how that shift came about, is it is fascinating. I'm not, you know, not being a historian per se, you know, but understanding it when that actually occurred. Because I do think now that it seems to be more prominent in our communities where it is that competitive uh, nature that we we deal with,
1: it, it is it's one of the uh, one of the unintended. I want to be clear about this for your listeners. One of the unintended consequences of integration. Um, so, with integration, we, we're talking about legislation that placed a prohibition on uh, race-based discrimination. Now we know it to be the case that racism didn't go anywhere, right? But what it did was it lifted the veil and it allowed for black people with the requisite education and income to move away literally and figuratively move away from what they were being socialized by and within so in other words from a physical standpoint like you literally picked up your family and you moved them to the suburbs or some sort of nicer area of town so you were able to escape the concentrated poverty that you were being artificially suppressed by because of housing discrimination Mm -hmm. And so you literally start spending time around more white folks. And so you started picking up and subscribing to their philosophies. You started allowing their models for families to be superimposed on you, and you receive them as if they were indeed the norm, even though they weren't meant and created for you. Right. Um, and and as a consequence of that, we've also again become a more competitive people when by and large. Ours is a communal people who, again, as you mentioned, even in terms of not just the nuclear family, but our our folks have always out of necessity, right? Even um, had large levels of engagement from the extended family so as to spread the burden of poverty. Right. Uh, Mm. And and so what has happened as more and more of our people had less and less of a need to spread the burden of poverty because many of us have started to ascend into the middle class. What we've also done is we've also picked up some traits, qualities, attributes, values, and models of what life should look like from these middle-class perspectives. And those are being driven by competition because be very clear about it, in in the broader society when, when men, particularly white men are that provider Right, in the way that that model requires.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No, be very clear. He's the absolute, not just leader, uh, but the sole voice in that house.
0: Mm.
1: Right, right, right. He's the, he's the unquestioned voice in that house. And again, that's not a model that has worked for Black people and certainly not going to work in a contemporary context where Black women. Are uh, slowly but surely outpacing black men in terms of formal education
0: and income. Right. Um, yeah, we could spend all day. On we could spend all day on this topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's pretty. Yeah. You know, because it, yeah. you know, I'd even want to delve into, you know, remedies. But you know, let's move on because then there was an article about, and it was a routine Rotimi. I guess he's on Power, uh, but he was on a on a morning Angie, the Angie Martinez show, and so he talked about how he had met, you know, his soulmate. And, and I guess I think he's engaged to be married. But what I thought was interesting is that he talked about, um, you know, being engaged feels like, a, and this is his quote, being engaged feels like a mixture of everything. Uh, the power star told Martinez, I was tired of being in the streets. I had a good time, but like I got tired of it and she just literally made me have tunnel vision. So I, I just thought it would be a great topic because is there, you know, from what you've seen, do men get to a point where they do get tired of just being in the streets? And what do they get tired about? I guess is a mm-hmm. question where they feel like, okay, now I've it's really time to take stock of life and what I'm trying to do with it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I w- I would completely I would completely agree that in my experience. Uh, That is a real phenomenon, this idea of a a, of a tiring or fatigue that sets in from being in the quote unquote streets, which is mostly about sort of this notion of sowing one's oats uh, and and experiencing whatever it is that is out there to experience. And again, to be uh, uh, more explicit, when we're talking about experiencing what it is, we're talking about sex with a variety of women, to be clear about what we're talking about. In my research, one of the questions I ask men or have asked men is: For married men, help me to understand in your trajectory, in your relationship, at the point in time when you realized that you wanted to propose to your now wife, was it the case that you found yourself ready to be married, and then you end up meeting the person who became your wife, or? Was there something about having a relationship or connection with this person that sped up your interest in wanting to, quote unquote, settle down and be with this person? So this is a classic chicken or the egg sort of Mm -hmm. situation. And I've gotten basically split responses. So it literally is sort of chicken and egg. It sort of depends on the man. But what I can say for people who are listening out there is right around age 28, 29 is the sweet spot. Okay. Okay. If the advice I would give to people that I care about is if you are if you are a woman and you're looking for a serious committed relationship, if the man that you are involved with is 24, 25, 26 um I, I think I would hold out until right around 28. Uh, now again to be clear then there's nothing magical about the age of 28 but what I'm saying is, my experience tells me that this being in the streets phenomenon, this is a real thing. And it's around the late twenties when for many men, not all, uh, but for many men that subsides because at that point, whatever it is that they wanted to experience or felt like they needed to experience to get that out of the system, they've had an opportunity to do that. Um, I've interviewed men who talked about marriage and described marriage as if it were a loss. You see what I'm saying? And so these these were men who, for whatever reason, did not get all of their streets out of them. Okay. so they ended up getting married and in their minds, uh, marriage was something that was inevitable and they had been tracked down and captured by their wives who then attached a ball and chain to them, right? You see what I'm saying? So this this is where this language even comes from. And even the idea of like sort of a stereotypical bachelor party, it's like, okay, well, this is your last day of freedom.
0: Freedom. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. And so again, this language, this is intentional language. And so this idea that stereotypically before you get married, because in this scenario, if the bachelor party is your last day of liberation, you necessarily are going into bondage, right? And so anyway, so what I found is that uh, right around 28, 28 or so is where men have had an opportunity to move beyond whatever that is, or at least are starting to move beyond where that is. So I <clears throat> for the people that I know and I care about, if they came to me and said they were thinking about getting married, if if the man that they were looking to marry was younger than 28, I would I would encourage them to Think more clearly about that, unless they had reason to believe that this particular man was extraordinary in some way. Um, oh, okay.
0: Uh, and you know just because, saying? just because of the the nature of not feeling that they are ready to settle down,
1: right? And to make sure, and to and to and to make sure that you've given allowances for this idea that him getting married to you is somehow going to be a loss or a throwing away or a concession of his liberty. That's not, that's not, you don't want to go into, you don't want to go into a lifelong commitment with the other person receiving that commitment as a concession of their liberty. Because then what you get in response to that is you still have the urge to be in the streets, streets. but, but you now aren't able to do that in an open fashion. So now you have to conceal it right and uh-huh. i i
0: did I, mean, I did come across that in working with couples as well mm-hmm. whereby uh, you know in, in the in the pandemic actually exacerbated it that because they didn't have that opportunity to interact with just other people uh going out on a natural normal just normal thing happy hours or what have you and and then felt the need to to find other ways to interact yeah. uh you know in using online, you know, online platforms to do so. And so that's, that's quite fascinating.
1: And if I can, one
0: more
1: more point on that. Yeah. And and this, and this is, this is for my ladies out there. Um, 28, I think is a a good number. Again, nothing magical about 28. So you got to there's some give and take depending on individuality or whatever. But 28 is right around a, a decent age. And listen, like, like, like in my experience, men, you know, we were talking about truth before we got on the air. Right when a man really and truly loves you, like he, like he wants to tell you the truth. And I know it to be the case in my experience with the men that I work with, they will tell women the truth. They will tell you, I'm not ready. Now what ends up happening, but it's also the case that if a man loves you, he will want to see you happy. Right. And so we know that there are situations and scenarios where women will continue to ask for a thing either directly or indirectly and sort of wear a man down until Mm. he just concedes. Right. 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 Be careful about doing that. If it artificially speeds up his timeline, because what'll happen is he'll, he'll give in to you. And it'll be for a really, really good reason. He'll give in to you because he loves you. Like he genuinely loves you. But if he's really not ready, that will indeed come back in many cases, Not obviously not all um, that may come back to to do damage to the relationship, because that's where this marriage as a loss phenomenon comes in, he, because he would feel like he gave in to you and he still has this whatever this real or perceived need or urge to get whatever that is out. You don't want that getting out after you've already made the commitment, but it happens every single day
0: yeah absolutely and i'm sure a lot of it deals with you know the woman's timeline to be a mother and mm-hmm. and it you know the chicken of the egg egg thing is you know yeah. on, just on the, the gender roles and what you know because women want to you know want to have kids and or at least start that clock earlier mm-hmm. uh, as couple them and and what have you so true truly fascinating uh difference there but And because I was going to ask, and you might have already kind of answered it a little bit. Do you think because of the disparity of the differences as far as men to women or percentage wise, do you think women like, look, I found this person, I got to make sure I keep them, otherwise someone else may swoop in? And so do you think that does that also factor into the thinking? And so the only way I I know I'm going to be able to keep them or say this is my husband is to get married.
1: So certainly there is um, there is this notion of a, a man shortage and the extent to which particularly Black men are marriageable is, is a real thing. The gender imbalance is a language that is oftentimes used in, in the field, right? And, and there is indeed a large gender imbalance with and among Black people, where it is certainly the case that there are not as many eligible Black men for each eligible black woman. And it gets worse as black women ascend socioeconomically. So in other words, if, if a black woman is looking to marry a man who is her financial or educational equal, the higher she ascends, the more rarefied the areas. Right. Right. Um, And so that is, that is indeed a problem. Um, and so this is another sort of chicken or egg sort of a situation, because I think when, when I've talked to men about this, what they'll say is, well, black women are too picky and they have unreasonable expectations and standards. And you talk to black women and they'll say, no, I know my worth. I know my value. I'm not going to just settle for anything. And I'm certainly not willing to share a man. And so that's, that's a tough one because the honest truth is the more and the better, educationally and financially the better a black woman does the fewer and fewer men there are for her to pick from if she's looking for as a deal breaker right someone who is her financial or economic equal it's also the case too though that many of the men that i've interviewed they'll say and these are these are and these are men who because again in my book my book is largely middle income men uh, Mm -hmm. because all too often in the research what we hear from or hear about is low income black men so I was looking right. to, try to be intentional about balancing that out because I talked to mostly, not completely, but mostly middle income men. And one of the things that many of those guys talked to me about was they talked to me about this idea of black women that they were in contact with or that they knew and had as friends and acquaintances would point to them as sort of successful black men and say, oh, my goodness, why can't I find a version of you for myself? You with me? Mm hmm sort of lamenting the state of affairs around this gender gap. But many of these black guys would talk about, they was like, no, like I was rejected and turned away. And as the young people say, I was curved so many different times by black women because I was, for lack of a better term, I was a geek or I was a nerd, or I wasn't exciting or I wasn't fun or I wasn't whatever the, at the time when the relationship would have started and been sort of in its origins. And so another way to think about it was the, they're according to these men, right? According to mm-hmm. these men,
0: right?
1: If we can go back to another sort of fairy tale, these men were walking around as the proverbial ugly duckling, and they later on evolved into the swan that was super, super desirable mm. because they were faithful men, right? They weren't in the streets. Many of them never even had an opportunity to be in the streets because they didn't have that many options. Uh, but they were dedicated men, they were committed men. Uh, they had, uh, educationally and financially successful, and they now find themselves in places and spaces where people are looking at them as if they are exemplars and they and they're saying, no, like I would have been all too thrilled to have dated you five or six years ago, but you wouldn't have given me the time of day because I wasn't what you were looking for. Someone else found me later on when I was a closer to being a finished product and they scooped me up. Right. Right. And you now find yourself in this game of musical chairs. Now the record stops, and there's nowhere for you to sit. Yeah,
0: and right? that's interesting. And I, would, I, and I don't. I'm sure you don't really know. I mean, because Louisville is actually a big school, but at Georgetown we used to talk about that too. Because I mean, there's a lot of factors, but we, we, we thought there would be. You know, of course, years later, it was like, wow, there weren't as many um, black marriage relationships on campus because of. And I don't know if that was the factor because we were, you know, men or the ugly ducklings, or you know, because it was too, we think it was we were too close and you know, everybody being each other's business. But mm. yeah, we did find it fascinating because when you go back to reunions, you say, Oh, there aren't that many couples that shared the same experience. And you would think that would be there would be more. And maybe it would, maybe is because of the fact that we might have been the Ugly Ducklings, or and that maybe not the Ugly Ducklings, but just not seen as marriage material yet at, at the that time,
1: time. Yeah. right? Absolutely, yeah. So a, a lot of again, I, so I'm in, I'm in I'm in no position to either confirm or refute that yeah. because again, I'm people are telling me their experiences, and so I just I just relay those experiences to other yeah. people in ways that may be or informative to them. But but it is indeed the case a large number of, again, highly highly successful men, their version of it was. I would have loved to have dated or had these options to date these women at the time, but those women did not want me mm. um, because I was seen and and even guys who, and, and so the, like, the weird sort of irony in this is a lot of these guys who would describe themselves as somewhat, um, not androgynous is the wrong word, but they, they don't display the traits and qualities of what we now know as sort of toxic masculinity they they treat their women as equals they receive them as equals they're attentive listeners um uh they value their woman and uh and all of these types of things and what they'll tell you is many of them is that at the time all of those traits and qualities were seen as deficiencies or weaknesses because at the time the women that they were in close proximity to were looking for something or someone more exciting or a bad boy, or right. whatever the case may be, only to have that right. person emerge out of that uh, really, really successful and find themselves to a more mature and evolved set of people be seen as highly
0: desirable. Yeah, I was going to say, I just think well, one of the things is probably an issue we just don't ask enough questions earlier on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have because I'm sure women, you know, would co- would comment and say the same thing. You know, sure. they were, you know, we, as men were looking for, uh, you know, Janet Jackson or, uh, whatever we seen as a beauty standard mm-hmm. and where there are women that were highly intelligent and just maybe hadn't grown into the women that they, they are now, uh, and they were overlooked. So absolutely, yeah, I'm sure, you know, we could talk about that for days, <laughs> you, know, you yeah. know? And so, you know, kind of, kind of to finish up, um. You know, there was another article that um Tia Tia wrote in the Black and Mayor with Kids uh, podcast, and then an article that I wrote for your Tango, and it really had to deal with this level of you know intimacy. And it was more so from an old, um, I would say I wouldn't say older perspective, but you know, we get you're getting past the child bearing age where you know you have to really pour in uh, all of your energies to the children and you're starting to be empty nesters and think about, you know, the, that next stage of marriage whereby you're still viable enough to, to enjoy it. They're being challenges with that. Mm-hmm. And so I, and, you know, so I just really wanted to kind of start there. And so, cause you kind of opened the article about open conversations about, about their sex lives and what have you. And so, what you, you know, in your research, because I know you, and I don't know you focus primarily on single men, but you said middle-aged, so I'm sure there was some married married mm-hmm. men that were also, um, was that a challenge just to talk about, you know, especially we as men who aren't as communicative about, you know, issues, uh, was that a challenge that they had trouble, you know, talking about and, you know, and what were some of those reasons?
1: Sure. I think the closest thing that I've encountered is is men talking to me about their interest in achieving a level of intimacy with their partners that may have been separate, distinct, and independent from sex. And so that was one of the most fascinating findings of the book that men were talking about intimacy. And in my my mind, when they were talking about intimacy, I just sort of used that language interchangeably with sex. It wasn't until i had a man stop me and say no 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 no, i'm not talking about i'm not talking about physical intimacy. i'm not talking about sex and so that that led me to ask more direct questions of the guys about help me understand where are you around this conversation related to intimacy and what i found again i was surprised because it may have been that i was walking to uh interviews with some stereotypical notions that that men wanted to achieve a level of intimacy with their partners that, uh, did not involve sex. Now this is not to suggest, I want to be clear about this too. This is not to suggest that they weren't interested in having sex with their partners. They absolutely were.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they were saying that they wanted, in addition to that, they wanted to feel connected, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like you said, a lot of the guys struggled with it because they didn't know how to articulate it. Some of them didn't even recognize that that's what this sort of missing thing was. Right. Um, And many of them talked about the idea that they didn't recognize the fact that they even had that need until they were no longer in the relationship when they found themselves missing their partners or their former partners and not just missing having someone who was available to have sex with them, but missing the time that they spent together doing whatever that thing was that they did you know what I mean right and so right. it was only it was only then that they were able to realize and connect the dots like oh my goodness like what is this the thing that I'm yearning for the thing that I'm I recognize that I miss now is the connectedness yeah yes. what
0: did what did that connect connectedness look like when they did explain it what did what did that really mean
1: yeah so it, it was it was about it was about not what was happening not the thing that they were doing but who they were doing it with so, right. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the activity of the thing could have been whatever, you know what I mean? It could have been okay. sitting down watching a football game. It could have been watching the grass grow or the paint dry. Like that, like that, like that's the point though. Like the activity in and of itself didn't matter as much as it was who they were sharing that time, place and space with. Mm-hmm. And a good bit of sex is, is mental anyway. Right. And so if, and when you're, you're really really into the person that you're sharing that, Experience with it makes it more pleasurable. Um, it 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 makes it more meaningful. Um, but again, but this is this is language that, and these are sort of thoughts and ideas and feelings that, again, to your point, most men aren't socialized to to number one think about, and then two, certainly not articulate or express, I should say, express right. because they may or may not even be able to articulate it because it's not something that they've had practice with, right? Because the world tells men that that runs counter to what it means to be a man. Right. Um, and so I think that in terms of moving this conversation forward, I think that one it's really, really important for us to be able to create spaces and places for men to feel comfortable with identity work, like number one, knowing who they are and what they are and having that be separate and distinct from whatever we are told men are supposed to be. Right. And then two, creating the type of environments where it's okay for men to express that and articulate it. So they have practice at doing it, so they can become more communicative. Um, cause so we, you know, we were talking about trust before we got on and we were talking about truth before we got on the air. I'm of the mind because there, there's a school of thought that says that honesty is always the best policy. And I, I, I think I kind of reject that. Um, I think that what happens is we teach people how to treat us based on what we, based on our responses and what it is we put up with. So in other words, if, Mm. if if Keith, if you tell me your truth and I fly off the handle, I should, I should own and take some responsibility. And subsequently when you have an opportunity to tell me the complete truth, if you don't give me the full truth, because you, because we all have a need to preserve our self images, right? Right. And so and so if me telling you the truth is going to hurt me, why would I why would I do that? Why would I tell you the truth just because you're asking me for the truth when I know that you aren't going to handle my truth in a way that affirms who I am? And what happens to men a lot is if and when they are open and transparent and vulnerable, they get the equivalent of a hand slap. Right. Right. And, okay. so what and so independent of what, no matter what we're telling them, what they're learning, the message they're receiving is don't do that again. And then that happens for years and years and years. And now you look up and now you're 50 years old, right? You're 55, you're 60 years old, and you have an interest and a need to be connected to this person, but you don't know how to articulate that. And even if you do know how to articulate it, you have reason to believe that you should be careful about articulating that because you don't know how it's going to be received. Or, when, or even a worse scenario, you do know how it's going to be received and it's, going to, it's not going to be received well. Um,
0: Interesting. From the intimate or intimacy realm, what would be one of those things whereby where a man did express his feelings or his vulnerability and he did get his hand slapped?
1: Yeah. So the guys that I've worked with and the guys that I interviewed for the book, many of them had that experience where, um, and again, and even even if we can connect these two conversations, the one that we were just having about, sort of the men growing and evolving and turning to like really, really desirable marriage mates later on in life when they weren't seen, viewed or perceived as that as originally. Many of those guys talked about, again, the fact that the people that they are now, right, sort of fully evolved uh, uh, contemporary men who recognize the value in their partners and treat them well and don't try to dominate them and so on and so forth. Many of those guys, according to them, they were the same way 15, 20 years ago. But at the time, that wasn't; those weren't seen as desirable traits. They were, they were being called weak. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right, but right, they were being called weak. And and according to those men, uh the women that they were interested in was spending their time chasing around men who were treating them poorly. Right. So like what they what what they learned was the worse I treat a woman, the more she will desire me. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so. And so, because, and so for some of the men, they actually subscribed to that and just started to artificially manufacture, if I can use this language, just became an asshole, right? Because that's what they saw as being desirable. And for other men, if they stuck to whatever their uh, uh, sort of convictions were, they found themselves with no viable prospects until much later on in life when. Both they had gotten old and the women that they were around had gotten old and could appreciate who and what they were at the time. And so, so yeah,
0: we got, and you know, we kind of got a comment about that, you know, from oh, okay. Allison Williams, who was a, you know, she's, Hey, Allison, she's one of my divorce attorney friends. And so from her perspective, she was saying, you know, if a woman doesn't affirm a man's truth when it's hurtful or harmful to her, it's her fault that, that he now lies to her. So and she's saying that's why relationships are failing, you know, because yeah. lying is on the liar.
1: Yeah. So so I'm, I'm so I, I'm going to step back and and and, and so because I'm, I'm not looking to assign blame. Right. 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 So so I'm, I'm going to stop short of saying whose fault it is. What I'm saying is if and when if I want, not if, if you and I have a connection or a relationship, if I if what I want from you is for you to tell me the truth, what I'm saying is I bear. I have a role to play in creating an environment in which you telling me the truth is facilitated. Right. Exactly. Right. So in other it- words, you you doing the thing that I want you to do should not hurt. Because if I do that, then it's more I'm making it more likely that you'll do the thing that I want you to do, because, again, it works well for us. what happens all too often is people will say out of their mouth. Hey, I want you to tell me the truth. And then the person gets told the truth. And then it has a negative consequence for the person who was originally trying to comply with the request that was being made them, which is to tell the truth. And so what they learn from that is, OK, next time I'll either give you some sanitized version of the truth or I'll attempt to create in my mind what I think you want to hear, independent of whether or not that's tethered to reality or not. Right. But I'll tell you what I think you want to hear so that we can keep going smooth.
0: Yeah. And I could see that definitely happening. uh if someone, if, you know, it doesn't matter either partner desires more intimacy than the other and has been, has constantly expressed that. And, but then it was never, you know, depending on the other partner, if that, if that lands, um, you know, due to issues or something to that, to that issues that the other partner may have, um, or just not being received in the same manner, you know, you could, you could see the person start to pull back from being yeah. open and honest. And, in we, you know, we probably, not that you see it all the time, but in relationships that aren't, that are failing, you will see, you will see that because, you know, everyone's going to take that's take their side. It's like, well, even though, <laughs> even though I asked you for the truth and, but, and you decide to lie, you're still lying. And, you know, and, and then you of course, Allison probably deals with that when divorce court comes mm-hmm. and, you know, and have to deal with all the challenges, you know, dealing out assets and child support and everything else. Yeah. And I think that's the key. Right. So.
1: So at the end of the day. So that's the reason why I say I'm I'm going to stop short of a sign and blank. Because the honest truth is when a relationship is wrecked and it's a mess. If you feel better about being able to say it was my fault, then OK. But the relationship is still wrecked. Our right. relationship is still wrecked. Right. No, no matter whose fault it is on, on the intimacy part, if, if I can, maybe a, a word or two more about that. I think in a lot of ways, this is this is one of those things where uh, both men and women could do themselves some favors by really, really uh, stepping outside of themselves and looking to engage their partners on a level and on a plane. That makes sense for their partners. Right. So, anyway, so by definition, a relationship is a set of exchange. And these cycles, they can be virtuous or they can be vicious. Uh, the relationships that I'm familiar with, that I've worked with, where people have healthy relationships and the cycles are virtuous, what happens is each partner is looking to affirm who their partner is and provide them with whatever their needs are. Uh, in order to do that, you first have to do some sort of assessment to determine what those needs what those needs may be, what how to manifest those things, listening attentively when the person is trying to tell you, and then acting in ways that are consistent with that. And then what tends to happen in healthy relationships is the more I do to meet your needs, you end up looking to reciprocate. And so it's almost, if you think about it, it's almost like pedals on a bike. But right. if you think about if, if when you ride a bike, you, you the pedals are here, right? Like there's two different levels. And as you push down, necessarily, the other one comes up and allows the other foot to push. And, as you, and so anyway, so as long as you're pushing down on the thing, the bike is able to move forward. And so I think what happens is all too often, again, as we were talking about earlier, rather than viewing their relationships in the context of cooperation, where let me push down so that the other gear comes up and make sure I'm affirming who my partner is and, and connecting with them in ways that resonate with them so that they can feel the connectedness. And in turn, they can do the same for me, whatever that looks like. It may look different for different people, but um, that's the reason why you do the individual work to understand your partner and who they are as a person and what uh, uh, makes them feel good and feel affirmed and feel connected. And for some people, that connection really is uh, manifested in physical touch and physical intimacy and other other people, it may be manifested in different ways. But um, I think what we fall short is when we aren't doing the work to make our partner feel affirmed and the gear is pushed down on the bike, but it never comes back up. or somebody feels as though it never comes back up.
0: I think the biggest thing is that we don't do the work early enough. We don't we don't necessarily have to do the work as far as what we what we affirm as feels good as far as intimacy level because a lot of times especially when you're, when you're in a marriage relationship it's more about procreation and family mm-hmm. and so it, you know sex and intimacy becomes easy mm-hmm. because you're you know you're newlyweds and and things would have you but I do and then I think over time that changes. Mm-hmm. And we just, and, and, and we don't get a chance to one, figure out what it is or try to explore different things. You know, we're right. just, we're used to what we were, what we're used to. And so if we're not, if we're not getting what we did in the past, then therefore we are, we're not as connected as opposed yeah. to, okay, really do the work as far as, okay, what is it that you really need to feel connected, you know, to your partner? And exploring that and trying to and also find what your partner needs to, to feel connected. And we, we don't really get enough time or take enough time to do that in those settings.
1: Absolutely. And I, I think, I think the, the, the last part of what you said, when you, when you, when you, when you stepped away from saying we don't give ourselves enough time and then you said, well, no, we don't take enough time. I think that's it. Cause I'm thinking now about, I have a colleague uh, named Emily McKnight and Emily has a book that is about um, couples who decided that they were going to be celibate before they got married. And so, and among other things, one of the conclusions of the book is that when, when folks are able to abstain from sex, physical intimacy, it necessarily requires them to lean into each other as people. Mm, Right. mm. And so for many of the people that she's worked with, what happens there is it, Creates a space in a scenario where when they actually are physically intimate, it's really, really an awesome experience because they are really, really into their partners, separate and distinct from the feelings that they can derive from enjoying each other sexually. The other thing is, again, to the the original point is over time, as, as we get older and we're wrestling with things like maybe erectile dysfunction or uh, on set of things like menopause or, or um, hormonal issues that men and women have, when we when our bodies aren't allowing us to be physically intimate at the rate that we once were, a lot of people find themselves in trouble because now what's going to be the foundation of a relationship, right? Because right,
0: right.
1: it also happens, again, to your point that you were making earlier, this also happens right around the same time that if the couple has kids, the kids are now either aren't grown they're close to being grown. So now you have this sort of emptiness phenomenon happening where you, whereas before for the last 18, 20 years, even in the relationships imperfections, um, you could put that aside because you were concentrating and focusing on whatever it was that needed to be done with and for the kids. Right. Yeah. But now the kids are grown and gone. And so they don't, need anything don't require anything of us and so now we're in this house and it's just the two of us and we may or may not even know each other Mm -hmm. right um and so and 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 if that's the case if we so we don't know each other we don't have anything that necessarily connects or binds us and our bodies aren't performing the way that they used to perform what do we got Right. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, I think it sort of underscores the idea that intimacy, even in or even in a relationship's early stages, doesn't necessarily have to or maybe even doesn't need to always revolve around uh, sex. Because, again, in some ways that may cloud people's judgment, may cloud people's vision and it may keep them from taking the necessary time that you mentioned. That is required to establish that foundation, so right. that there's always something there to keep people connected, even and so when that they, even when their bodies aren't responding the way that they used to.
0: And that's a fascinating question. So because we'll kind of end on this, but so taking sex off the table um, because of whatever issues. What one or two intimate things do you think a marriage should have in the later years? And if you don't have that, it could be challenging.
1: You're saying. Not, to not include sex in that you're saying right yeah so i so i so i think the 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 true answer is it, it really doesn't i'm And i'm not looking to evade the question i'm going to respond to it right. but but I, but I think the true answer is it really depends on the the, the two people involved in the situation okay. you know what i mean right but but to, but but to respond to the question and give a sort of a generic enough response i, I think i think that there has to be some reciprocity the two sort of cornerstones. One is reciprocity. And I think it's close cousin um is empathy.
0: Mm.
1: Right? Reciprocity and empathy. Are am I willing to provide for you in ways that approximate the way that you provide for me? And I'm not talking necessarily financial provision. I'm talking about pouring into your partner, whether it right. be money, whether that be time, whether it be effort, whether it be investment, whether it be energy, whatever the case may be. And then two, empathy. Um how willing are you or how able are you to see things from my perspective and allow that to inform how it is that you connect or engage me i I think those are the things if if we could put together some combination of high levels of reciprocity and empathy empathy.
0: Mm. i think our relationships would be a lot a lot better for those of you listening out there we need more we need more of those things reciprocity in empathy. I th- yeah, absolutely. Not, yeah. not more sex. <laughs> so there you go.
1: Right. Well, and, and so if, if sex is your is, is your end game. The thing, I, think yeah. if, if, I think if you if you could put together a combination of increasing the reciprocity and the empathy, I think uh, in, an, an increased amount of sex would be the byproduct of that. Right. Um, again, I think if you if you talk to if you talk to if you talk to women, when you talk to women, if it is indeed the case that in their relationships, their men have a higher sort of a need or want for sex and they do stereotypically what women are saying is they aren't saying that they aren't interested what they're saying is well i'm not feeling it or i'm not in the mood or i'm tired so what they're saying is if i didn't have all of this other stuff a lot of this second shift stuff right where i've right. been at work all day, right? if i didn't have a lot of this stuff then i would be freer to be able to do some of these things so again so if 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 you had more reciprocity and you had more empathy if you empathize with what it was she was saying what you would do is you would take some of that off of her right absolutely right in order to be available there you go and then and then, and then think about it again go back to the bike you're saying you want more in a physical intimacy standpoint she's saying ah for whatever reasons as you take more of that off of her plate she becomes more open and receptive to it you get more sex if that's the end game and now based on the fact that you're now getting more sex you're now motivated to give more of whatever it is that got you to sex and so now that you now right. you've created yep. a cycle but the cycle is virtuous yeah,
0: right we have we have a great ride road
1: bike going on there you go <laughs> so there you, there go. you we can, go we can go tour de france right we can yep, ride up absolutely. and down Swiss, absolutely absolutely whatever whatever they do at a tour de france whatever or whatever the case i think well, also uh, often we do the opposite which is we we don't get what we want we there is there's very little reciprocity there's very little empathy and that creates a scenario where we now get into a competition where we point fingers and say well you aren't doing your part and as a consequence, i'm gonna fall back and not do my
0: part Um, well dr perry this has been great um we'll definitely do it again in the winter now this was the fall edition since fall just happened this past week but if we really want our relationships to to grow and thrive, you know our family structures have been dying a little bit, and um, and with the disparities that are gone, going on as far as women to men in the workforce or what what have you, we, we have to do more of this. So, uh, thank you. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Looking forward to it. Um, my suspicion is that the men are listening; they just may be for whatever reason a little bit reluctant to hit sin. So, hopefully, we'll be able to create an environment where they're more willing to press in, and we can keep the dialogue going. But again. Most certainly appreciate you having me. Uh, thank you for your your listeners and your viewers. Look forward to engaging you all again sometime real soon.
0: All right. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Take care. All right now. Great interview with Dr. Perry. If you don't remember anything else from our show tonight, remember these two things, empathy and reciprocity. That can improve intimacy in our relationships. If we can work harder to have those things in our relationships, it could vastly improve us as couples. Black Men Speak was written, produced, and written by me, Keith Denton you can subscribe to the Black Men Speak podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts as always we'd like to end the show with a quote and this one comes from Dr. John Henry Clark we can't have war between black men and black women because no one can be free if one half of the mind other people is tied up in conflict it's going to have to be both of us or none of us This is Keith Dent from the Black Men Speak podcast. Peace.